Well, we are talking about the secret of contentment. You know, if you go on to social media or just uh, onto your favorite search engine or you go onto YouTube, whatever, and you just type in how to find contentment, how to be happy, how to get rid of anxiety, any of those kinds of things, you will get more responses than you could look at in your natural lifetime. I mean, there's a lot of it out there because it's a really self-help culture. And you'll find things that will tell you what you should do to be content. And the interesting thing to me as I survey these things, which I kind of do periodically, as I survey those things, I realize some of them have diametrically opposite advice. And I thought, well, I don't know how well that's gonna work. So then I think, well then, why am I here trying to talk to you about the secret of contentment? Well, first of all, it's not Terry's secret of contentment. If it were, uh, you should probably not buy that book uh, because it's just another self-help book and it will probably do just as well as all the other self-help books. I mean, honestly, I've said this a million times, but seriously, just be logical for a minute. If self-help books worked, why are there more and more and more and more of them on the same topic? Yes, you're right, that's because they don't work in general. Life hacks are great, they can give you a little relief for a short period of time, but they really don't solve underlying problems. Well, so having read the book of Philippians, letter in the New Testament, and realizing that the, the letter to the Philippians, this is Paul the Apostle writing to the Philippians, literally goes chapter by chapter, basically step by step. It just flows right through till the end where Paul talks about being content in every circumstance. Here's the difference though. You're thinking, well, Terry, why, what if we just do these steps? Why do we think it's gonna work any better than self-help? And I'll tell you why. Because you can't just do these steps. These aren't just things you do, this is a becoming something new. This is a radically different way of thinking about your life. And you should expect that. Because let's face it, if we're living in a, a world that is very uh, much in turmoil, if we find ourselves in anxious situations and fearful circumstances, which we do, what would make us think that we can conquer the problems we're having without changing the underlying foundation of it. In other words, really, if, if we have problems with anxiety and fear and worry, what would make us think that we could change that without changing what lay underneath that? And that's what the book of Philippians is talking about. The first step was having an attitude of gratitude which kind of gets us outside of ourselves. That's how Paul starts. Second chapter we're gonna look at in this lesson is Paul taking us a little further and saying, okay, now that you're outside yourself, I wanna expand your gaze a little bit. And then in our next lesson, you're literally gonna be taken to the top of the mountain and say, now let's expand your gaze and you know what's really going on in life. And that changes your worldview completely. So, in this series, in this lesson, we wanna talk about Chapter two, which moves on from an attitude of gratitude, which gets me out of the tunnel vision of living my little life and it's, it's just me and my worries and my fears, is to step back and at least say, okay, well, broaden your view just a little and say, surely there are things that you have for which to be grateful. Well, I don't know how well you did with that and I would urge you to continue it, but that's a great way to reset your perspective. This next lesson, I really wanna talk about the epidemic of self-centeredness. And so maybe the best illustration I can get is this. Okay, now stop and think about this for a minute. You, you know what, I, you know I Googled, I'll be honest with you, I searched women being selfish and I couldn't find any pictures like this. So I just <laughs> wanna tell you that. I searched men being selfish Oh, I don't know, there were more than I could put up there. And so, this, this to me is a graphic illustration of it's about me. Well then, however, I thought, where are the women in this thing? And so then I went to some different websites and I found this. Why you need to be a more selfish person? Why self-care is not selfish? 
why you need to do whatever it is that makes you happy. And I realized all the women in those first pictures have gotten together over on Pinterest and now they're figuring out self-care, okay? So self-centeredness is, is not something uh, that's unique to a particular group of people. Self-centeredness is something that's baked into fallen humanity. I was looking at, uh, this, this article happened to be in Psychological Science. Uh, and by the way, this article goes on to equate self-centeredness and depression. A very interesting article. But I thought this might at least pique our attention for this idea of self-centeredness. Along with the rise of anxiety in our culture, whether you're Christian or you're not Christian, all, I'm gonna suggest to you that the second step in this has to do with the focus on self. This was interesting. Social media, says uh, Dr. Riggio, while it connects us to others may actually lead to greater self-centeredness as people strive to make their presence known. Much of social media is all about me. That's the understatement of this century. Overly do, uh, doting helicopter parents may also be creating greater narcissism in children. And finally, society, with its emphasis on celebrities, appearance, and narcissistic role models and leaders may be playing a part in the rise of self-centeredness. And there's no question in my mind that self-centeredness is on the rise. Self-centeredness, when it grows up, becomes self-absorption. And you see, you see a lot of people that are beyond self-centered and we, we've moved into being self-absorbed. In fact, one of the great criticisms of America, actually, one of the great criticisms of the whole first world, which would mean America and Europe uh, and the uh, industrialized nations, one of the great criticisms of them is we are self-absorbed as a society. And we are very us-centric, us and them kind of an attitude. That's one of the criticisms of our society. So my point is simply this, telling you something that you already know, is self-centeredness is on the rise. And self-centeredness is actually considered to be a virtue in secular society that it is considered virtuous to take care of yourself, to do what makes you happy, to fulfill yourself. It's part of the uh, psychotherapeutic mindset in American secular culture. So it's really considered a virtue. The problem with that is, if you think about where it leads, because it promises that you will be happy, and then in a deeper sense, you will be content if you focus on yourself and your needs. And if you wanna know whether or not that works, I just refer you back to my statement about the proliferation of self-help books. Obviously that doesn't work. But the Apostle Paul, and this is our thesis, this is our statement that we're really trying to get to, like what is it that you know that you can say this? I'm gonna argue that if you put this up and you didn't tell people it was from the Bible, and he said, hey, I've met this teacher, and look what he's saying. They'd say, where do I sign up? I wanna to go to that seminar. I think everybody wants that. And Paul says, well, you can get that, but I can't give you a simple step one, step two, step three. It actually is a total home makeover. And so, Paul says this, I am not saying this because I am in need. Remember, he's in prison when he writes this. For I have learned to be content whatever my circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. By the way, I'll tell you how that word, uh, that's a great little Greek word, uh, how that is translated in other passages in and out of the Bible. I don't know if any of you are into Stoicism. Stoicism is a uh, philosophy, it's a Greek philosophy, but the Romans popularized it. Oh, maybe fifth century BC is where you see the beginning of it. I mean, it's really old. It's really making a comeback in the probably 30s, 40s generation right now. This word is all over Stoic philosophy. And here's how it's, so I just want you to know, it's not a word that's just a Bible word. Uh, this is sometimes translated enough. It can be translated self-sufficient. And so what it means is basically, I don't need anything else. I'm okay with who I am, with what I am, 
where I am. And so contentment is a great translation. I just want you to know that you're gonna see this, this same word in a lot of literature and in the New Testament. He says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well-fed or hungry. So he's not being illusory here. He says, oh, whether it's fun or it's not fun, whether I'm hungry or whether I'm well-fed, whether I'm living in plenty or I don't have enough. I can do everything through the one who gives me strength. So this is where we're going. This is at the end of the letter to Philippians. And so I thought to myself, I wanna know what happened with Paul that gets him to that point. And so let me take you back in time just a little bit. And I wanna, I wanna flesh out his history just a little because it's worse than I told you last time. In our last lesson, I told you that he wrote this letter to the believers in the town of Philippi. So we call it Philippians, the letter to the people of Philippi. And he wrote it in about 62 AD, but he visited there and he founded the church there. So let me take you to Philippi. It's uh, in basically in Greece. And he visited there in 51 AD, 11 years earlier and started this church. But what I didn't tell you was what happened to him there. He didn't have a very pleasant visit when he was there. And so he's in jail in Rome right now, but 11 years earlier, he was in jail there. Let me tell you what happened. In the book of Acts, this is in the New Testament, Acts 16, it basically, the latter part of Acts just follows Paul through time, pretty much chronologically through time. So Acts chapter 16, he goes to Philippi. The time is 51 AD. He said, well, we were there, we went to the place of prayer and we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Okay, let me tell you, you go like, okay, seriously, what is that? Okay, in the ancient world, they thought that the gods and goddesses would speak through certain people. All the oracles, when you go to an oracle, you'd see a priest or a priestess, usually a female, a priestess, and you would ask your question and you would pay a pretty hefty fee too, and the god or the goddess would then answer you through this person. How did they answer you through this person? This person would go into an ecstatic trance and start speaking in an ecstatic language and usually helped by certain strange kinds of mushrooms and other pharmaceuticals. Seriously, this is how this worked, right? And they felt like that got you in touch with the spirit world. The Bible's understanding of that is that in this case, this is something going on here, but this is demonic. So the slave girl starts, uh, they, they made a lot of money off her by fortune telling, by answering people's questions. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days and finally Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. And this little girl, by the way, becomes normal, which is good for her, not so good for her owners. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Now this is a Roman governed town, although the people here are Greeks and some Roman retired soldiers, etc. but the govern government is Roman. Dragged them into the marketplace, faced the authorities. They brought them before the judge, the magistrates, and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Was that their beef? Of course that wasn't their beef. Beef was, can't make money anymore. Want to punish these guys. That's not exactly something that you can charge someone with. So they drummed up another charge. Happened to Christians a lot in the history, going to happen to Christians again. So the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. And after they had been severely flogged. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never been flogged. Don't ever want to be flogged. Seen pictures of people who have been flogged. And I definitely don't want to be severely flogged. People died from this. I mean, it's, it's just brutal. So they flogged them and then threw them into prison. We have been, Laura and I have been there where people believe they threw them into. And when, you say, when I say prison to you, don't think prison. 
think like a cistern cut into the side of a hill. It is filthy, it is dark, it is small. They just throw them in there, clang the gate shut. And so the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And on, upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So in other words, making sure these guys don't go anywhere. Story goes on. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. I have to stop here for a minute. I don't know about you, but I want you to put your head into this and say, okay, if this happened to you, I would predict it's probably the worst thing that has happened to most of us. If that ever happened to us, it would be the worst that's ever happened to us. And so what are they doing? They're praying and they're singing. You know what that tells me? Different perspective on this situation. Is it pleasant? Of course it's not pleasant. They're in pain, they're bleeding, they may get an infection and die for all they know. But they have an attitude of gratitude. Once again, you see them praying and singing hymns to God. So the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was an earthquake, a lot of earthquakes in this part of the world, that the foundations of the prison were shaken and the prison door was uh, set ajar and threw open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Very common Roman custom, by the way. You think, man, that's crazy. I'd just write an apology note. You know, sorry about those prisoners. You know, now, this is really common. His life is forfeit for them. And so they uh, basically yelled out. Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're here. The jailer called for the lights. He rushed in and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or place your trust, exactly the same word, place your trust in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his family. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, hadn't even cared for them. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. What a story. Well, when it was daylight, the magistrates uh, sent their officers to the jailer and said, okay, you can release those guys. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. You can go, go in peace. But Paul said, no, I don't think so. He said, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens. That is a very bad move on their part. And they threw us into prison and now they wanna get rid of us quietly? No, why don't you have the mayor come down here and escort us out himself? Well, the officers reported this to the magistrates and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were very alarmed, meaning bad news for them. So they came to appease them and, you know, sorry about that misunderstanding. Oh, that looks like it hurts. Yeah, I'm really sorry about that severe flogging. And so they came to appease them and escorted them out and requested they leave the city. So of course, Paul didn't. And so Paul and Silas came out of prison. They went to Lydia's house. This is Lydia who is hosting the believers. That's where they had church, was in her house and where they met with the brothers, meaning the believers, brothers, sisters, kids, and all the believers and encouraged them, and then they left. That's what happened to Paul when he was in Philippi. And so the other thing you can tell about that is if you were a Christian in Philippi and they just did that to the head guy, how hard do you think it would be, a faithful, be to be a faithful Christian in Philippi after that? So my point in telling you all this is to set the context this is not Paul just jotting off a little YouTube video. Hey, it's Paul here. I thought I'd give you the secret of contentment today. This is lived reality. And I really want us to put our head in it. If you say, well, that's easy for Paul to say. No, it's actually really hard for Paul to say. In fact, if anybody told me they had the secret of contentment, somebody that had the life he did, I would listen to them. So then, Come back to our letter, in 62 AD, he has been arrested. The Jews tried to kill him down here, by the way, in Caesarea. So then he got on a ship, made his way to Rome, in Roman custody, he's waiting to see Caesar, he could get killed any day. And so he writes a letter 
back to the Philippians to say, man, wasn't that fun when I was there, and how are you guys doing? But he knows that his life is difficult. He knows that their life is difficult. He, he's writing this letter to you and me. I mean, we just have the 21st century version, and maybe not as bad, of the sufferings that they had. We too have relational suffering, we have financial suffering, we have anxiety, we have fears, we have loved ones who our hearts are broken for addictions and things. We have suffering too, and so did they. And that's why this letter is so apropos in my mind. So this is Paul, and that's the context in which he writes, I have learned the secret of being content in every circumstance. Chapter one, give thanks. You're like, no, I'm seriously, we got problems here. You, you, you must not understand. He goes, yeah, I know you got problems there. You need to step back and count your blessings. That was step one. Chapter two, he moves on. Watch what he says. He says, now, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if there is any comfort from his love, if any fellowship, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. Well, what would we need to do? Be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, meaning you do need to look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. What's, it, what's happening here? The first step is stepping back and saying, look, I can count my woes. I mean, I have a list of my woes. I have an indexed list of my woes, right? I know what my problems are. He said, well, step one, step back and just count your blessings a little bit. Be grateful and reset your perspective. Now, once he's done that, he said, now I wanna take you to the next step of perspective is I want you to not just be concerned about you, I want you to have an outward focus. Be concerned about others. Have a perspective that is outward facing. Basically, he's saying to, here's how I would interpret this for the 21st century. I don't know about you, but if your life were a movie, you would be the star of your movie. The universe revolves around us. I mean, that's the way fallen humanity works. I'm not accusing us of anything. I'm just saying when you watch a movie, now be honest, watch a movie, with whom do you usually identify? If the answer is the villain, I really want you to go see our counseling department over there, okay? Because you and I identify with the hero or the heroine or the helper, I mean, the good guys, right? We're gonna identify with the good guys, why? Because our lives, we're the star. We think this is a movie and we're the star of the movie. And Paul says, well, you know, maybe you need to look around at some of the other actors and consider them as well. Maybe you're not the star of this show. Let me pause. We'll get a question before he goes and he's gonna go deeper. He's gonna challenge us more and more as he goes. How did the local officials know that Paul was a Roman citizen? Did he have some way to prove it or did they just take his word for it? Good question. How did they know he was a Roman citizen? Well, they didn't bother to ask, obviously, didn't care, looked at him and said, you're not Italian. And so they assume that he is not, okay? They make this assumption. That's a big mistake because if they'd ask him his name, his name is Saul. That's, that's a Hebrew name, but he uses Paul. Paul is English. It's Paulus. And when you hear that, you go, that's a Jewish looking guy, but that is a very Roman name. And the only way a Jewish guy, and by the way, Silas is a Hebrew name, Silvanus is his name, and that's a Roman name. And so if he said, what's your name? If they'd even asked, he would have said, my name is Paulus, probably something like Paulus Flavius. We don't know the rest of his name. And so, but basically they would go, ooh, well, tell me a little bit more because you're a Jewish guy, but you've got a Roman name. That typically only happens if you're a citizen if you're under the patronage of somebody. So when they asked him, he didn't have papers with him. What, you, what would happen with that was, when he just told him his name, he's got another guy that vouches for it, they realize, oh, well, this guy's probably telling the truth. You can find that out because it's registered. So they could have held him, found out if he was a Roman citizen, and then given him a Roman trial. But they realized, no, this is probably true, and I'm in trouble. The penalty for claiming to be a Roman citizen and you weren't was death. 
and there were severe penalties for treating Roman citizens this way. So they didn't know, but they obviously, when they stopped and asked him questions, they were like, okay, this, this guy is a Roman citizen. He speaks Latin, Paul spoke Latin. He's got a Roman name and he can tell us how he came to be a citizen. You'll find out later in the book of Acts, uh, one of the uh, Roman officers gets him and he said, I'm a citizen. And the officer said, are you sure you're a Jew? Not many Jews are citizens. He said, I had to purchase my citizenship, which you could purchase citizenship. Paul said, but I was born a citizen. And he said, release him, you know, and takes him out. So it was a big deal. But once they, once they talked to him, they realized, I think this guy's telling the truth and we're in big trouble. Well, let's keep going. So he goes on and he says, have this mind. This is a very famous passage. But remember what he says is, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. In fact, he says, your attitude, your way of thinking, your whole world view. This isn't, well, let me just tell you what you should do to be thoughtful of others. Is every morning do this and every afternoon do that. This is not a self-help thing. He said, I want you to think about the world completely differently. He says, I want you to have the attitude that Jesus Christ had. This is what makes this not self-help. Jesus didn't come to make better people, he came to make brand new people. There's nowhere in the New Testament that becoming a Christian makes you a better behaved person. That's not the point. Will it happen? It'll undoubtedly happen as a consequence. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is a radical reorientation of your whole life. And if you've ever thought to yourself, and you should have, you should have asked me this question, or because it's a good question. Well, Terry, if the Bible tells you the secret of contentment, why aren't more Christians content? Fair question. But since you didn't ask it, I don't have to answer it. So, <laughs> but this is why. is because becoming a Christian isn't a mental ascent. It's not like becoming a Roman citizen. I pull out my card and I say, here, here's my Sam's Club membership. Here, here's my Christianity card. The secret of contentment is all about completely reorienting the way we think, which is exactly what following Christ is about. He said, I want you to think just like Christ thought. He was in very nature God, but he did not consider equality with God something to hold on to. I know the NIV says grasp, and I don't like that. What the word is is something to clutch on to. He said, I am the, a God. He, this is the Trinity, but he did not insist on his rights. Instead, he made himself nothing. I hate that translation too. It's literally, he emptied himself. He poured himself out. In what way? taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. And then what did he do? He humbled himself. So he emptied himself, he humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And for that reason, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what is he saying here? He's not saying, look, I want you to be nicer to people. That's good though, be nice to people. I want you to uh, do good deeds for people. No, but that's good, do good deeds for people. What he's saying is, I want you to be so other-oriented just like Christ was. I want you to think about the world and your life just like he did. We pause there. Think about that. What question do we have? In that passage, it talks about doing nothing out of selfish ambition. So the question is, um, how do you discern the difference between feeling like you're made for more than what you're doing versus being ambitious? Yes. Let's talk about that for a minute. That's a good, that's a good pragmatic question is does this then mean that you cannot be ambitious at work? And I'm gonna put that word in quotes because we're actually defining that word two different ways. She's using the same word, but we're meaning two different things by it. Selfish ambition is, has nothing to do with work. Selfish ambition can manifest itself in relationships. It can manifest itself in business deals. It can manifest itself in parenting. Selfish ambition means 
I want to make more of myself. That's what the Bible's talking about. We just happen to be using a word that we use in a very specific context. Selfish ambition in marriage is selfishness in marriage, meaning it's more about, it's those guys on the first picture, right? It's more about me and you meeting my needs. Ever get into a marriage, I'm sure none of yours, but let me just, theoretical. A marriage where it kind of became a, a, well, I do more for you than you do for me. You know, kind of you're starting to keep a ledger. You know, like, well, oh, really? You, you do all the work? No, you don't. You, oh, I do most of the work. How is it that two people can live in the same house and both think they do most of the work? I mean, have you been in that situation? Yeah, okay, well, selfish ambition. I'm not saying condemning all of that. I'm saying, what are, we, what are we talking about there? We're in the realm of meet my needs, meet my needs, meet my needs, and then maybe I'll meet your needs, okay? That's what it's talking about. Ambition at work can be selfish ambition, like me, me, me. I wanna go up in life so I can have a three-car garage and all that I want, and I can order these little peons around, and you know, I mean, yeah, that's selfish ambition. But ambition to fulfill your talents and your skills and to want a promotion and do that doesn't have to be this. It doesn't have to be exploitive of other people. So uh, hopefully that helps a little bit. That's how I would see the difference. We're just using the same word ambition in a little bit different context here. So he's saying, I want you to be like Christ. I want you to have the same perspective on life that Jesus had. That's a tall task. And by the way, the rest of the New Testament is also talking about this. I mean, when you talk about husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, let me just pluck that one out for a minute. What is that actually saying? Is it saying that husbands, you ought to love your wives because they deserve it? That's actually not what it's saying. Maybe true, but it's not what it's saying. It's, not, it's saying, husbands, why don't you, of all the other guys, won't you be the best husband? That's not what it's saying either. It's saying, look, I want you to think about yourself as a husband, not in terms of selfish ambition, meet my needs, meet my needs, meet my needs. I would rather you have the perspective of Christ and I want you to love her the way he loved the church and you just found out how much he loved all of you, right? Total change in the way you look at the world. That's the rest of the New Testament is talking about the same thing. And I want you to think about it that way. Here's some other things that you've seen before and I want you to put them in this context. This is Jesus. He said to them all, if anyone would come after me, and you could fill in the blank after this with a lot of stuff. You could say, needs to go to church two times a week. Wednesday nights don't count, but you've got to be there most Wednesday nights. You know? Or you've got to give 10% of your money if you want to follow me. He could say a lot of behavioral things, a lot of self-help things. If anyone follow after me, buy the person's coffee behind you in line once a month and give 10% of, of what you have to the poor. He doesn't. What does he say? This is really interesting. You must deny your self, take up your cross every day. What are crosses used for? To kill you. Crosses don't have any other purpose. Crosses are things you crucify things on. So, and when you heard, if when they heard this, they would have thought, okay, this is the craziest teaching I have ever heard. Are you sure we can't just go to a meeting twice a week? I mean, give me another option here. He says, no, you must deny yourself it can't be all about you anymore. You must take up your cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. That is Jesus refuting the, if you don't wanna have anxiety or worry or fear and you wanna be happy, indulge yourself. And Jesus said, try it. Anybody who tries to save his life is gonna lose it. That's his refutation. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul, his very soul? And so the point is, is that you can chase all the contentment you want in life and you gain the whole world, you're gonna find that that's actually not, the secret to contentment is dying to self, not indulging self. Let me say that again, the secret to contentment, that's what he's saying here, is dying to self, not indulging self. Jesus said, you need to take up a cross. Here's Paul, Romans 6, elaborating it. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. We are to humble ourselves. 
We are Christ followers. We take the mind of Christ. We pick up our cross, and you know what we nail on that cross every day? Our selfish ambitions, our selfish needs, our it's all about me lifestyle. Does that mean I don't count? No, it said look not only to your own interests. Yes, you need to go to work. Yes, you need to have a job. Yes, you need to do those things. But it can't be all about me anymore. We have to humble ourselves. That's what humility really is. Humility is this idea. It's not all about me. Humility is not, this is a great quote, and I do not know to whom to attribute this quote. Uh, so just pretend I said it, because it's really clever. But I did it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, meaning like, oh, I'm not really that good, or Jesus saying, oh, I don't deserve to be here. You should make me a human being. Uh, that's absurd, isn't it? Humility is not thinking less of yourself or being untrue. Humility is thinking of yourself less of the time. It's just think of yourself less of the time. In other words, think about other people as well as yourself. That's what humility is, and here's Peter. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, and he will lift you up. What did he do with Christ? He said he emptied himself, took on the form of a servant. He was obedient even to death, which he didn't deserve, and God raised him up. That's that idea is all over your New Testament. James, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So how have Christians done this? And I wanna just focus on one, it's a great example. It's, I use this example a lot because I really like, uh, I think she gets this part of the Christian life very right. So Mother Teresa, you know her story. Uh, maybe not as much suffering as the Apostle Paul, but the point is she became poor to be with the poor it's not that she didn't feed herself or take care of herself, but she basically said, it's not all about me, and so I'm gonna be other-focused. I'm gonna step back out of a selfish perspective, and I'm gonna try to have the attitude that Christ had. And if Christ were here, I know he wouldn't be working completely for himself. He would also wanna be caring for others. And I love this quote because that ca this captures it. Once we take our eyes away from ourselves, from our interests, from our rights, our privileges, our ambitions, then they will become clear to see Jesus around us. That's the same, she understands what Paul is saying in this letter. First, have an attitude of gratitude. Get out of your problems. Next step, have the same mind as Christ. Not only get away from your problems and look at what you have grateful for, look around at everybody else and oh my goodness, they have problems too. And you know, I think I might be able to do something about that. And so he's saying, I want you to think about this the same way Christ thought about it. Continues in Philippians. He says, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. In other words, this mindset, this attitude, he said, from God's point of view, you shine like stars in the universe. You are so different from the self-centered universe in which you live, which God calls crooked and depraved. He said, as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing, but even if I, and remember Paul's in jail for preaching to people like the Philippians, I am being poured out like a drink offering. So what Paul is saying is, look, I'm just trying to do what Christ did. I preach the word to you in obedience to him and here I am in jail. And he said, and I may die. He probably doesn't die this time, he probably dies about five years later in the same jail and his head's uh, cut off. So he says, I may be being poured out like a drink offering. What's a drink offering? In Jewish ritual, one of the things you would do is you'd pour uh, some wine as kind of an offering to God, like with grain or fruit or that kind of thing. But even the pagan world understood this. Even the Romans, for example, at a festival, they would take the glass of wine and before they would drink, you know, we usually say grace, what they would, they would pour a little bit of that out for the gods and then they'd go feast. Paul's saying, I'm kind of like that. He said, even if I'm gonna be poured out, my blood's gonna be poured out on the sand and I'm gonna die for your sake, 
He said, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you and you too should be glad and rejoice with me. And if you think about that, that's a strange thing to say and it's honestly, it's an insane thing to say in a secular world. If you look at life like it's all about me, the idea of this kind of altruism is a mental illness. I mean, from a secular worldview, being willing to sacrifice your rights, privileges, your very life, your comfort, your freedom for people you don't even know for the sake of Jesus Christ is crazy. People who have a secular worldview give as a, I'm just gonna use stat, rough stats, I'm painting with a broad brush. And I'm not trying to malign people with a secular worldview. People with a secular worldview, this is a fact, give very, very little percentage of their income to the poor, anything, any charity whatsoever. Now, to be fair, they may say, look, the government ought to do this, the government ought to do that, the government ought to do that, fine. But their own comfort level. People who are Christ followers give way more. I mean, orders of magnitude more. Now, stop and think about it. That's nutty. If you are a secular person, you should not give very much money. If it's all about me, I do not want to give my hard-earned money that could be buying me comfortable stuff to other people. Yes, I know their lives are hard. The government should do something about that. To a Christian, makes perfect sense. It's like, I have enough and I can share. And that's why that stat is there. But if you're a secular person, that stat makes no sense whatsoever. I don't know how you would even get a secular person to give 10% or more of their income away. I mean, it makes no sense in that worldview. And I'm not critiquing it, I'm saying this isn't a life hack. The secret of contentment isn't just, oh, you should probably do this, you should probably do that. It's a radically different way of looking at the world. It's looking at the world like Christ looked at the world. Well, let me summarize it. I love this book, and I love this book, uh, big, big bestseller, resonated with a lot of people. And you know why it resonated with a lot of people? Partly because he's a good writer, but that's not really it. You ask Rick Warren, he'll say, oh, it has nothing to do with that, because he tapped into an essential truth that rings true inside us. And all he did was tell you what Philippians chapter two said. It's not about, this is the first line of the book. In fact, just read the first three sentences of the book, you can stop there. I mean, it's a great book, but this is Philippians two. It's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you wanna know why you're placed on this planet, you have to begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. This is a radically different perspective on life. It's not about you. So one step back from my problems is an attitude of gratitude, and another step back from my problems is other people out there in the world, and then I have to make this fundamental change and this is a hard decision. Am I gonna live for me, or am I going to be like Christ, and I'm going to live for something bigger than me? You understand what I'm saying? If you wanna know why people don't accept Christ, that's actually why people don't accept Christ. I know there, you get a lot of reasons, you get a lot of answers from Pete. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons, but when you bake, boil it down, that's the fundamental life-altering decision people make to follow Christ. Do you trust Christ that if you lose your life, you will gain it? Do you believe Jesus Christ that it's not about you? That is not an easy thing to accept and not very many people actually do. But Rick Warren hit the nail on the head. That's what Paul said is the next step in changing your perspective, is saying, it's not about me. Question? Well, the question is, um, will you tell us why more Christians are not content? 
why more Christians are not content. Okay, any way I answer this, because I framed it in such a way, have you, let me tell you what's happened here. I'm gonna tell you, in a conversational sense, here's what's happened here. I started painting this stage, and I painted myself right into a corner. And the only place that's left is right here. And that's what I just did conversationally. So I'm gonna charge forward. The, what I've told you is, is that the way, the secret to contentment is this radical change of mindset. And so if you say, why are more Christians not content, I will say to you that we have failed to embrace this radical mindset. Now, before you think, I just threw every one of you under the bus, and myself included. I'm not holier than thou by any means. What I mean by that is, is we need to take up our cross every day. Remember Luke chapter nine? Deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. And what does that mean? I, I start my day every day with the prayer that, Lord, transform me. Let the spirit, different words every day, but the same prayer. Let, the, let your spirit transform me. Transform my heart to be softer, to be compassionate where you want me to be compassionate, to love where you want me to love. Transform my mind to see people the way you see them. I'd love to see people the way Mother Teresa saw them. You know, I mean, help me to see people the way they do. That is a process. You know what I'm saying is that as we cooperate with the Spirit, Romans, I just want you to know, all this is connected. The whole New Testament talks about this. Romans chapter eight, you know this first verse, maybe not the second one. Romans eight twenty eight. in all things God works together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I'm gonna talk about that next lesson. That's the view from the mountaintop. But then it goes on and it says, for those he foreknew, he predestined, ooh, that's interesting. That means he knew you. Ephesians said, he knew you before the foundation of the world and he chose you in Christ before this universe was created. I mean, that's, that's love. That's how much God loved you. He said, and he had a plan for your life. He predestined that this is what you would do. What did he predestine? That you would be conformed to the image of his son. The following Christ is the process of allowing the Holy Spirit, surrendering every day to the Holy Spirit to transform us into Jesus Christ, to think like Jesus, to feel like Jesus, to act like Jesus. Does that make sense? That's why we are not content, is we still dabble and we still have things that need to be cut off. A lot of preachers will talk about it this way, is that Christians are constantly putting to death sin in their life. When you pick up that cross every day, I said, what do you nail to that cross? Cross only has one purpose, and that's to kill something. You, you nail yourself, your old self. The NIV translates it, nail your sinful nature. The sin in our lives, the self-centeredness in our lives, every day is nail it on that cross and go on, and it's an everyday thing. So that's why I think is we need to stay this course and follow Christ because we have decided that he is the son of the living God and that what he says is true. Jesus said, I came to testify to the truth. He said, for that reason I was born. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. I have told you the truth and the truth will set you free. And we said, I believe that. I will follow you, and this is what following him looks like. Great question. It's not about us, but I wanna elaborate on that just a little bit. It's not about you, this is secret number two. This is actually just perspective number two. First perspective, get out of your problems and look at your blessings. Next perspective is look around at everybody else. You notice how we're just moving farther and farther away from self and the self-centered life? You are part of something much bigger that God is doing. And I will add one thing. It's not about you, and when you follow Christ, it doesn't have to be about you anymore. And I'll tell you why it doesn't have to be about you anymore. The, the ultimate essence of self-centeredness is trying to fill the God-shaped hole inside everybody. That the most self-centered people are the most empty and hollow people 
People who can never have enough are people that have a hole that can't be filled. And you have that hole filled up with the love of Jesus Christ, who even though he was equal with God, didn't hold on to that, but for your sake he emptied himself and became a human and was obedient to death on a cross and you go, I don't need anything else to fill me up. It no longer needs to be about me. I no longer need you to think I'm important. I no longer need money to win this game. I no longer need to be uh, the top dog in this relationship anymore. Oh my goodness, when you understand the love of Christ, the love of God for us, you literally overflow. John in 1 John says it this way, little children, See how great a love the Father has lavished upon us. It's not about you, but that's not bad news because it no longer needs to be about me. I don't have any holes that need to be filled. Now, does Terry's sinful nature still have some holes? Yeah, and that little dude needs to be nailed to the cross every day, right? We do have a sinful fallen nature and we are constantly putting to death our sins. Jesus said it this way in John 15. He said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And the Father prunes the branches so they grow more fruit. That's, all this is the same idea. And that idea is we continue to put to death the elements of our sinful nature and we no longer need to be filled up with that stuff because you're filled with the love of Christ. That's secret number two. So what do you do with that? First, take that step back and continue to have an attitude of gratitude. But then secondly, let's get our eyes up a little further and just look around for the people around you. Now I'm gonna confess to you my biggest difficulty in doing this, my sinful nature, which is an element of pride. If you dig down deep enough, you'll find pride. And it is busyness and that is filling up the plate with all kinds of stuff to do. And since I'm a pastor, I can say, yeah, but it's really good stuff, so it's okay. It is really good stuff, but it's still not okay. So for me, what I need to do for this is looking around at other people is just go, relax, slow down, all that stuff will still be on the to-do list tomorrow, and go talk to somebody and find out how they're doing. In other words, being other-centered. I don't know what that looks like in your life, probably not the same as me, I can pretty much guarantee you, you are all kinder people than I am. But you still have your challenges, right? This challenge is look around at the people around you this week. Take an interest in them even when it's not convenient. Some of you do that very well. Others of you, like me, have to keep nailing little pieces to that cross every day to make that happen. Our next lesson, we're gonna take one more step back and you're just gonna see the world in a radically different way. This, and you can't just jump to this. This is why Paul brings them along in this letter. This next step is, is really gonna change the way you look at everything that happens in your life. Well, that was kind of a teaser, wasn't it? But anyway, I'm serious, I'm passionate about that. Attitude of gratitude, look around at other people, and then you will have ears to hear what Paul wants to say next. So. Thank you guys very much. I'll see you next time.